my boss said, oh, yeah, this, this guy, he knows, it was some telecommunications company, I can't remember the name, but there's 30 cents, I think, a, a share at the time. And so I thought, yeah, yeah, great thing, came home. I get excited about investing. And so I'm talking to Tracy, who wasn't my wife then, but, you know, baby and all that, and she was flat against it. No way are we doing this. What did I do? I still did it. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you, my podcast listeners, based on the lessons I've learned from all my guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Brendan Rogers. Brendan, are you ready to rock? Absolutely, Andrew. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Brendan Rogers' purpose is to improve the lives of people at work. He does this by providing consulting services and resources to leaders who want to become more effective and their teams to become less dysfunctional. And ladies and gentlemen, he is the host of the Culture of Things podcast. Brendan, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Mate, just to, I guess, thank you very much for the introduction. And I'm really excited to do this podcast. So I, I haven't had an opportunity to talk about my worst investments before. I'm, normally I'm talking cultural leadership and teamwork stuff. So thank you for the opportunity, mate. My own journey is, look, I'm, I'm married. I've got a couple of, well, adult children now, 21 and 18, live on the central coast of New South Wales, which is an absolutely beautiful part of the world. I'm actually a Queenslander. I grew up in Brisbane, but if you've got to live in New South Wales, the central coast is a pretty good place to be. You know, as you said in the introduction, I've got my, a consultancy business. I work a lot with leaders and teams, helping them to become more effective, less dysfunctional. And really, mate, that's just, I like to sum that up in a bit of a, a way of, it's really about helping leaders and businesses learn to manage themselves first as leaders, but then also how to get the right people into the right roles, having the right interaction when they're in teams, how they had some, some discipline around what they do in their organization and how they're leading people and how they're getting people to be effective. And then wrapping that up through all of that happens through powerful and genuine conversations. I'm also a mad football supporter. I love Liverpool football club. So um, that's probably the high note to finish on as far as the introduction, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a question about that. I mean, based upon your experience and the work that you've done, with leaders and you've seen dysfunctional, you've seen, you've helped dysfunctional move to high functioning. I'm just curious if you would have like one little piece of advice out of all the things that you've learned and seen for the audience who, you know, plenty of the listeners want to become more functional. And they, I can tell you dealing with dysfunctional teams is like everybody struggles at time with that. So what would be like your one piece of advice there? Andrew, I think to relate it best to your show, a lot of people talk about how money is the root of all evil. Well, I think when you're talking about leaders and teams, humility or a lack of humility is the root of all evil. You know, when people are in teams, either leading teams or part of a team, as soon as you get people 
doing things for the benefit of themselves rather than for the benefit of the team or others in the team, it's a recipe for destruction over a period of time. And the longer you let this sort of behavior go, the worse it can get. So humility is that factor, really identifying people that may have a lack of humility, struggle with humility, a little bit more egotistical and about them as opposed to the good of the team. If you can get good at nailing that, you've actually got a really solid base for people working together well. It's an interesting point. And I think it's a great point because as I look at the work that I've done with teams and with companies and CEOs, I've really come to the opinion that, you know, to be successful, first, it takes a good CEO that provides the vision and all that. But what it takes is coordination of a management team. And it's hard to coordinate when everybody's looking at their own situation. And one of the biggest challenges in this space is that we're taught that compensation systems and measurement systems are all about identifying individual KPIs. And sometimes when you do that, you actually focus people on their navel. <laughs> like they're like, how do I hit my goal and yep. get my, I mean, I've got to get my bonus. You know, if I don't get that, it's going to affect my family and my kids and all of that. So we are told like the best way to manage people is through KPIs and all of that. But yet sometimes that can destroy that teamwork. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, absolutely. I've got plenty of thoughts, mate, but it's really, I guess, to, to provide some really simple process around that. It's, it's very, very important that we do have individual performance measures with people. You know, people need to know what's important in their role and how they can impact on their role and really doing a good job. Often what gets missed, and as you said, you know, people looking at their navel and they just focus on that, which is sort of understandable if as a group and as a leader or a leadership team, let's say, that you haven't brought people's head up above that individual cloud and made a group cloud for the team. Like what is, what is this team working towards together? And I just happen to look after a certain element within the team, which is where you can get down to your individual performance. So if you have individual performance, but not also related to a team collective goal, then you will get those silos happen within teams and individuals focus on themselves rather than what's the best decision for this team and for the goal that we're trying to achieve collectively. It's a it's great, great discussion. And I think, you know, one of the things that really complicates it is the concept of compensation related to those individual goals. If we had a perfect situation where a boss works with an employee to identify where's your weakness that you want to fix and where's your strength and how do we get most out of that? And we meet on a regular basis to get that out of that conversation becomes a really authentic relationship. But the minute you add compensation into that, now there's this subjective judgment of, did you do that? Not, and all of that. And so in some ways, getting that compensation up one other level to the teamwork, the cooperation, the division, maybe the whole company, I think also can diffuse some of that focus on ourselves and our own individual goals. So I, I love the topic. Absolutely, mate. I mean, you, you've, you've nailed it again. And compensation can be many things. It doesn't have, you know, obviously we always default to money, financial compensation, but it doesn't need to be that. But the, the truth or the real key point, which you touched on is that the compensation, whatever that looks like, that needs to be a team compensation to drive team performance and teamwork as soon as it comes down to individual stuff, then naturally you are breeding as a leader for me to maybe 
challenge the fact that if I do this, this is going to be good for me and my compensation, but it may not be best for the team and the overall benefit of the team. And that, that's where it becomes a real challenge for people. So as leaders, again, we are leadership or culture is a reflection of leadership. What behaviours or how are we setting up an environment that drives a behaviour that we really are happy with as opposed to maybe driving something that we don't always realise we're driving, but we're driving the wrong behaviour. That's just all sort of setting up in the framing of, of the culture and then how we get people to interact and work together as a team. Mm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you like what you're hearing from Brendan, make sure to go to the show notes. I'll have the links in there to his website, brendanrogers.com.au, and also a link to his LinkedIn. You can also just go to LinkedIn and type in Brendan Rogers, and you'll see improving leaders and teams. All right, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Thanks, Andrew. Like the worst investment ever. So just to frame it up a little bit, back in the late 90s, myself and my wife, she wasn't my wife at at the time, she was my girlfriend, pregnant as well, but coming back from the UK and I had a role in Sydney that I was coming back to. So we were 24 years of age, young people expecting our first child you know I guess at the time I was earning okay money but you know we were building a family we were renting in Sydney which even back then wasn't a cheap place to rent it's even worse now so you know there was financial pressure we didn't have any family in Sydney we had very few friends in Sydney because it was a new place for both of us my wife had come all the way from the UK to Sydney via Brisbane, which is my hometown, but we were living in a place, we're very isolated, basically, and we really were relying on ourselves as the core unit, because that's all we had. Come along our first child, Caitlin, born in the year 2000, and, you know, I I was always a person that enjoyed investing, not that I'd done a lot of it, sort of pre that time, but, you know, not earning a lot of money and I was working with a, a boss in, in a big global organization and we talked a lot about investing and this particular talk was around share investing. Now, I wouldn't say there was a lot of money invested in today's money, but when I did some checking against what I was earning, I was basically invested 5% of my gross salary for the year, which is probably a reasonable chunk when you, when you think about the perspective of it. And it was a sure thing, right? Heard it from a mate. <laughs> You know, this, this guy, I'm not even sure if the friend that we've heard it from was actually in the share market game. So, you know, there's probably one lesson to learn, like speak to the experts supposedly. But they, you know, my boss said, oh, you know, this, this guy, he knows, it was some telecommunications company, I can't remember the name, but there's 30 cents, I think, a, a share at the time. And so I thought, yeah, yeah, great thing, came home. I was pretty, I get excited about investing. And so I'm talking to, Tracy, who wasn't my wife then, but, you know, baby and all that sort of, and she was flat against it. No way are we doing this. What did I do? I still (laughs) did it. I still did it. There's a lot of learning that's happened since then, mate, and sometimes I am a slow learner, but I went against her judgment. I went against us as a team, and what was the, the impact of that was actually, it wasn't the money, it was the level of trust that was just broken absolutely straight away and if you put this in 
the context of what I'm talking about. We had myself, my not yet wife, but we had a small child not having friends and family around us. She was unbelievably reliant on me. I was unbelievably reliant on her, although I was still leaving every day to go to a workplace and have adult interactions. So breaking that trust and in, in the only person she had to rely on is actually quite an emotional sort of experience when I, when I thought about it and look back because, you know, I was her world and, you know, our first daughter was her world. So to think that I could treat somebody like that to start with around just, you know, not being a team player. And I've just spoken to you in the lead up around how I value teamwork and stuff like that. Well, I was the most unhumble person, you know, this is what I wanted to do. So I just went and did it and I had no respect for, you know, my, my future wife and my daughter and my family. And I don't have to tell you that the investment did not work out very well. (laughs) (laughs) There was not a lot of money left when the shares went down very, very quickly. So yeah, it was not, was not good. And the build up back from that to obviously work and build up trust again around decisions. Um, you know, that, that's something that took a hell of a long time to rebuild. And can you remember some of the conversations you had with your wife when she was, you know, first of all, kind of shocked that you did that number one. And then when it all goes bad, you know, it's even worse. Like, okay, you betrayed my trust and you lost the money. I mean, if you betrayed my trust and you proved that you were a brilliant guy and it went up by 10 times, you know, maybe I'd forgive you, but. Yeah, mate, look, I think I have a really, I must have a really good knack of putting trauma out of my head because I don't, I know, I know there was some trauma involved, <laughs> not, not physically, but certainly some, you know, very, very heated conversation. And what was, what was even worse, mate, to magnify the situation. And my beautiful wife reminds me of this, you know, I say reasonably regularly, but I even a letter, you know, a confirmation of shares came through the post and, you know, it was addressed to me. She didn't open it, but she had a sense of, you know, she's got a good intuition about things. And, you know, I I should have learned early because I can't get away with anything. She just has a feeling she knows me too well, but that letter came through and, oh, what's that? Oh, you know, I think it's just a newsletter from the company or whatever. And, you know, see that just turned a bad situation to very, very much worse. So mm. lots of heat. Of, you know, again, what, to understand the magnitude of situations like that, you also have to understand a person's background. And, you know, my wife through her own family had experienced some level of severe broken trust between, you know, her father and, and mother so that sort of coming to a new country, pregnant and now a young child, you know, vulnerable. that was absolutely vulnerable. And I just, I just reiterated this or perpetuated something that was extremely painful for her in her private life. And I've, I've done that in a different way, but still the fundamentals of that trust. So it wasn't pretty. It wasn't yeah. pretty. So how would you summarize the lessons that you learned? Oh, well, I think the key word is summarize. The lesson, the number one lesson that I learned, and look, I was playing in teams, sport, semi-professional sporting teams when I did this. So you'd think I was a much better attuned to teamwork, but I was obviously a very selfish individual. When you're going into a relationship and especially living together and having a child together, to not be open to conversation around what might be right for the timing of, you know, even level of risk or you know, risk levels that people are, are okay to take on, 
me, I get excited about opportunities, whether they be you know, helping people or investing or whatever. So, and I like to try and get other people excited about that. So I had to learn very quickly about my own aptitude for getting people excited. And then if somebody's not as excited as me, I think they're crazy. And why wouldn't I do it anyway? Because it's the right thing to do. I learned to say, well, I need to stop having, it's not even group think, it's individual think. And I think my way is the right way. I think that's one of the worst things you can have with investing is mm. just, you know, looking at your own view, not even doing some research, but not getting some perspective from others to help you look at things through different lenses. That had to be my biggest learning experience. And that has carried me right through in everything I do today. Mm. Well, let me, maybe I'll share a couple of things that, you know, I take away from your story. You know, you've Please. said, you've said the words, I get excited a few times. And what that highlights is a book that I have on my shelf called Your Money and Your Brain. And that book was a great example of how investing is actually a physical sport. <laughs> it is a physical activity because the anticipation of gain or the experience of loss are actually felt in our brains. They're even felt on our bodies when we know, okay, that stock just fell by 50%. You know, you can just get sweat pouring out of your body when you like have this. So that book went through your money and your brain went through the idea of through functional MRI to show how really physical the world of investing is. The second thing is having been in the, that world all of my career, it's so hard to perform well in that and consistently do well in managing money. And then we have to use a lot of tools. So in my work, I have other people that I work with and we, we argue about our ideas and, you know, and, you know, nobody will push that their idea and to the extent that they won't listen to anybody else, except in a very rare space where they say, no, I'm going to do this because of da-da-da. But so there's like a whole process that, you know, in this case, obviously you got excited. So you skipped that part of the process. The second thing that I take away is, you know, thinking about my mom and dad and basically throughout their marriage, which they were married for about 59 years when my father passed away. My mother lives with me here in Thailand now, and she's listening to this podcast right now, but they made financial decisions together. And I think that that allowed them to do well. And they did well. It, it wasn't like they started with a lot of money and my, my mom didn't work. She was a housewife. My dad wasn't, you know, a super high paid executive, but over time they steadily and slowly built up, you know, their wealth. And when, when my dad passed away and we sold the house and my mom came, I was able to go through her accounts and we went through everything and to be able to say, you have enough money to support yourself for the rest of your life. You are financially independent. You are a financially independent woman. And that means that, you know, you are not a burden to me financially. And even if you somehow we spend all of that, you know, you still have me behind you. That's a very rare situation. And I think that what I would like to highlight from your story is that for the women out there, that vulnerability is very real. And a lot of women will just hand over investing to their husband and then find at the end of their lives that in fact, he wasn't that good at it or he didn't talk about it and you don't know anything about it. So I think that this is a really good lesson for, you know, for the listeners out there. If you're a woman and you're married or you have a husband or a boyfriend or whatever that is, 
when it comes to money and investing, don't be afraid to ask questions about what they're doing and how's this going and get involved because actually there's research out there about professional investors that show that women are actually better as risk managers, basically, which is probably what's key in investing really. And that's what this podcast, you know, I talk about from the beginning. So there's just so many things about how as a husband and wife team, it's just so much better to work together. And so I just think that you raise that point to the audience about how critical it is. And don't be afraid for women out there to speak up. In addition, last thing I would just say is I wrote a course called How to Start Investing in the Stock Market, you know, How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. And I wrote it for women. In fact, I wrote it for five women. And those five women are my five nieces. And when they were 18, I gave each of them about $3,000 and helped them set up an investment account to get started. Because I thought the best thing I could do as an uncle would be to help them understand how they could become financially independent and then make more of their own decisions and that hopefully they would end up like my mom. So that's a long-winded explanation, but I definitely think the audience needs to hear it. Is there anything you would add to that? Yeah, mate. Look, I mean, what you've just said there and the action you've taken to support your niece is absolutely fantastic and credit to you as a person. So first of all, well done on that. I think to reinforce even further the point you make about women, females being good investors and good risk managers, yeah, even just in preparing for talking to you today just doing some rough figures and I thought you know what roughly I think that I've probably lost so and now this includes some interest and all this sort of stuff probably somewhere in the region of around $150,000 in money uh, real terms when I have driven an investment and, and probably overrode things and that's, that's mainly been through some property stuff as opposed to shares. But unfortunately, it probably started at the share thing, as I shared. When my wife, Tracy, has been a much better contributor and in anything driven some of the decision-making, those investments are still today very, very profitable for us, particularly in the property market. So once again, reinforcing and a, and a learning back to your earlier, or back to your earlier question is, you know, I've really got to you know, swallow some pride to some extent and say, well, you know, if my wife Tracy thinks it's a good idea and something we should look at, or she's come to me with something, then I probably better sit down and listen because she's got more runs on the board than what I have. <laughs> well, maybe that's an excellent point that I, I said for the women out there to, you know, don't be afraid to talk to your husband or whatever, but it's another great point is that to the men out there, you want to be better at investing than take in the input from your wife, from your girlfriend and discuss it with them and see what you get. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, if you don't have a wife or girlfriend, I mean, anybody within that circle that, you know, you value their judgment, you know, female or whatever, really, really important in my books. Yeah. And that's where one of the common mistakes that I heard from listening to so many stories is that people are driven by emotion or flawed thinking. And I often say that to overcome that, find a third party, another person outside of it, and then talk to them about it and get their feedback. And so, you know, that's an important part. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I think we've just touched on it, mate. That is the, that is the key thing for me. It's in my language, I need to treat 
investing and I would encourage people to treat investing as a team sport. And the way to look at that is that if you've, you know, we all have close confidants, I suppose, make sure those close confidants aren't just going on emotion and their own perspective on, you know, this, you know, you're going to the right people. You know, I'm not going to go to the, the GP to get my teeth cleaned. I'm not going to go to the dentist to take my blood pressure and stuff, you know, go to the right people mm. and, and build trust in that team. And really as an individual, you need to be open and accept sometimes that, you know, your way is not the right way. Um, be very open and humble to looking at the different perspectives the hardest thing I think in today's society, especially is the hardest thing is to stay curious around things. You know, why somebody has this perspective on something, as we know, there's so much judgment out there. You know, social media is a, you know, a cesspit of judgment after judgment, after judgment, rather than trying to identify, well, why does a person see the angle like that? And if we can try and take that approach as hard as it is, because when we hear something that, you know, really we don't, we don't like or, or that goes against our, our moral values or whatever, we, we sort of get that back up straight away and we, we almost try and defend rather than just take a breath, get in touch with ourselves a bit and say, hey, you know, why do you, why do you think like that, Andrew? That's a really interesting perspective. You know, it may sound a bit wanky to do, but, you know, there's, there's gold in that, understanding that because that's going to help you get a much better perspective on things in investing and particularly obviously we're talking financial situation in this particular case why wouldn't you take that insight yeah that's a great great point and i think the other part about social media is that it's constantly reinforcing your opinion and it's giving oh, you wow. more and more feedback about your opinion if you thought you like toyota pickup trucks they may go and send you a lot of Toyota pickup trucks where maybe another pickup truck may have been a much better suited for you, but instead you're focused on what they're feeding you. So great, great suggestions. Isn't that the great, isn't that the great thing about paid social media advertising made it? You actually get the reinforcement of what you want to hear anyway, without doing anything. Cause as soon as you go on social media, they, they flick it in your face anyway. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what makes it harder. I think, you know, what you're talking about is that's what makes it harder to get opposing opinions, you know, it just gets a lot harder. So you really, I think the lesson to take away that you've explained is that you've got to work a little bit harder to get those, but those new opinions and, and outside voices can be so valuable. All right. Well, la last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Actually, my number one goal, well, I shouldn't say mine, mine and my wife's number one goal is to actually just, close out our personal debt and thankfully the only personal debt we have is a small bit of money left on the mortgage once we do that and we feel that we can will achieve that in the next 12 months then we can focus on our tax deductible debt our investment debt beautiful beautiful all right listeners there you have it another story of loss to keep you winning my number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you my listener to reduce risk in your life so go to my worst investment ever Dot com right now and download the risk reduction checklist and see how you measure up. As we conclude, Brendan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? 
mate, you don't know how great that feels. I've actually finally passed something. How good is that? (laughs) (laughs) Mate, look, as I've said and reinforced, you know, treat investing as a team sport and really seek, seek out those differing opinions to challenge yourself, to challenge your thinking. I think if you can do that investing, you'll actually do that in life generally as well. And to me, that produces far better outcomes. So work hard at doing it. Beautiful. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.